seconds flat. Give me up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends. Welcome to Mile 104 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Travis here with you. Good to be back with our friend Phil, who has now turned into a full-time co-host. You are in the oh, rotation, that is Phil. quite a promotion, Travis. Well, listen, Ben's down in Florida, soaking up the sun. Cosmo, last I knew, was in Vermont snowboarding Ooh. like a week ago. So you and I, in middle America, fighting through an ice storm. We're still here. To bring it to the people. That's what they want. Thanks for coming in to the uh, Cleveland Park studio. Main campus. Main campus. That's <laughs> right, as you call it. The main campus. It's good to have you. We have all kinds of stuff to get to, Phil. Borderline emergency episode. Yes. And I was excited. Moreover, I hope you can match my creative enthusiasm and vigor tonight. I will do my best. We did spend a little bit of energy beforehand on a college football playoff expansion discussion we have solved the problem but that may come mile 105 that could be our next episode <laughs> we solved it but we also still disagree yes. on what the answer is as does the rest of the ncaa and every other sports fan <laughs> yes novak djokovic is getting booted out of australia can't even play at the aussie no. open sports world is in turmoil the nfl playoffs i'll just say it right now popular unpopular opinion Overrated NFL, first of all. Well, the NFL in general, yes. Yes. The season is too long. Mm -hmm. And next, the expanded playoffs have brought you poorer quality of football. I actually watched wildcard football this weekend because what else can you do on a snow day? And there was like one good team, or excuse me, there was one good game. Yes. And a bunch of losing teams who don't deserve to go to the Super Bowl anyway. No. At the end of the college football playoff... That's the end of the football season. <laughs> That's true. I've, I've given all I can to the NFL. Let's focus on running. Yes. This weekend, Houston, Texas. Oh, mommy, mommy. Oh, beautiful. It was a fast one. It was. Exceptional day. Cold to start. Houston has come on as like a huge American marathon. It has. You know, beyond the majors, we got CIM. You know, this is great. I had this running through my mind because you and I ranked like which majors yeah. we would want to go to when you were on before. And then it's like, what's in the next tier yeah. that's really, really good? And you're right. CIM, Houston. Who else are you going to put in a tier two marathon? I have a couple other thoughts. Oh, maybe this one's probably on your list. Probably grandma's. Grandma's would be on that's my list. That's That's the That's the best summer marathon. Yeah, Honolulu. Oh, Honolulu. Yeah. I mean, it's been a small in the past few decades but that one has some history don't sleep on philly that's yeah. a good race yeah regionally here richmond is oh absolutely a really good race yeah. uh we've fast had course plenty of friends who crowds. enjoy that but yeah houston was fantastic so let's start there before we get into the meet this week sarah hall 67 15 new american, american record in the women's half marathon besting molly huddles mark from 2018 also set in houston 
The, well, her husband holds the uh, American record set in Houston that 15 is, years ago. That's correct. Sarah's husband, Ryan. The previous number two women's time when we barely missed the record was set there. Emily Sisson, yep. just shortly after Molly Huddle. 38 it, years old. Well, let's let's pause on that okay. because I think that's, to me, a, a huge story yeah. that we'll come back to. In the marathon, it's Kira D'Amato, 2.19.12. 24 seconds faster than Dina Castor's time at the 2006 London Marathon, also an American record. Would you have predicted that performance from her? No. Me neither. No. We heard talk beforehand of pacing, targeting maybe 220. Then we heard pacing, maybe targeting an American record. Uh, She went out on a blistering 218 pace for the first 10K. That was done largely alone with pacers male pacers yep. who she dropped yeah. later on in the world record books um, there are different marks held for non-paced right paced with men races where the women and men are together right, combined. And, yeah. and so there are some asterisks there but this is unquestionably the american Impressive record performance yeah and so the two great distance Road racing records fall on the same morning. And to me, the top narrative is age. Absolutely. 37 and 38 years old, respectively, for D'Amato and Hall. These women are my age. There is hope. There is. Well, not only that, but D'Amato works a full-time job. Mm-hmm. She has what, had several stints where she's been off for extended periods of time yep. for injury. And is not really somebody I would consider the, well, would have considered the cream of American distance running, but women's marathoning in the U.S. is strong now. Oh, there's no question. It, it's been strong the past few years yeah. without her name even at the top. I do think over the course of the past year, she has injected herself into the discussion. Uh, distances from 10 mile to marathon with some really, really strong performances dating back to, you could even go back about a year to the marathon mm-hmm. project in Arizona with her previous marathon PR. You're right about the time off in her case and the full-time job. It's a really interesting dichotomy here of Sarah Hall, elite and almost professional for 20 years. Right. Has, has been at the top yeah, for her since, whole career. Since she left high school. Yeah. Um, and Kira D'Amato coming back, it does show the potential of growth over time with age and how all those miles over all those years add up and you keep getting better and better. Absolutely. Even when you reach the point where a metric, we're going to talk a lot about measures tonight, a metric like VO2 max mm-hmm. has topped off and maybe starts to decline, but you can still continue to still improve. improve. Yeah. yeah. All right. Who won the day on the women's side? Who? Ooh. Let's let's get edgy. It's early. Let's do it. Who won the day? Well, who's the bigger let's, story? Let's, uh, let's give a shout out before we move to that to to Maggie Montoya as well. Okay, yeah, uh, from Roots Running Project, which I I think that is one of the bigger stories coming out of Houston is the success that that group has had. Some former local runners, Brian Root, Frank Lara, yeah, are out with that group. Um, but Maggie Montoya ran two twenty nine. You know, coming out of the year that she had, I think she worked at that King Scoopers that was involved in the uh, massacre. That's right. You know, several months ago. Yeah. Um, I think that was quite a traumatic experience for her. But to come back and have the performance that she did was shout out to her. 
Man, who won the, the day? I think you said. Well, you know what? I'm I'm actually even going to pause you for a minute since you've added some other names to the list. Okay. I, I do want to mention some of the other times that got thrown up in uh, thrown up, vomited. <laughs> <laughs> some of the other times that were put up in the half marathon uh-huh. behind Sarah Hall, other American women mm-hmm. running uh, all the way back to. Uh, Nell Rojas, I believe, finished ninth yes. among the women under 70 minutes. Yeah. I think we saw three of the top six women's American half marathon times ever on this day. Yeah. Coming in because there was actually a group with Sarah Hall through 15K. Dominique Scott was in there, mm. Emily Durgan. I mean, there was a there was a pack. A field, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So, yes, it's not just about those two, but your answer to who won the day before we even talk about the men. Oh, let, I got to give it to Cara Dimato. Yeah. she made the Today Show this morning. Did she really? She did. I didn't. She had a what? full like five seven minute segment. Oh, how was she feeling? Tired. Yeah, I bet. but enthusiastic. Yeah, uh, but but I think for a non marathon major for a performance like that. To get that kind of mainstream publicity is huge for for our sport. You're right. I, I, I'm thinking about recent women to be on that stage. Molly Seidel, uh-huh. uh, post-Olympics. Shalane after New York. After New York, yeah. yeah. She did the rounds the next day. She was on right. live with Ryan and Kelly and whoever right. hosts that show now. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's a big one. I'm going to be... Maybe slightly more critical here, and I'm going to okay. pick Kira D'Amato because it was an incredible performance, but two pieces to the half marathon. Sarah Hall didn't win the race. Yeah. Kira D'Amato won the race. Yeah. Easily won the race. And that's a big thing for American running, too. Sarah Hall had someone almost two minutes ahead of her who <laughs> pulled away, who the announcers on the coverage didn't even realize was that far ahead of her. Yeah. So she finished second. It does somewhat feed the narrative of Sarah Hall, the time trialer. She puts up incredible times, but there's uh, somewhat of an Alan Webb-esque quality of, we haven't seen her at an Olympics. Mm -hmm. True. We haven't seen her win a big race. I know that sounds kind of harsh after an incredible (laughs) performance. I I don't intend it just to be that. it comes to what do you value? Right. Why are you there? And both she and her husband, Ryan, have always put a weight on, I want to run as fast as possible. Right. And that's a different value than racing to tactically trying yeah. to race. And the men's marathon was a tactical yes. exhibition of racing. Frank Lara, our friend, sixth in the what marathon. Baby with, performance. Yeah, his debut at 2.11 after leading for much of the race. First American? I'd, yes, uh, I'd say the better part of 20 miles, yeah. he was either in the lead or in that pack right next to the lead, rarely tucking to the back. It got out hot, and then it kind of settled in, and Frank was the guy who said, I'm going to try to drive this pace some. He has a huge future, because he, yeah. he's a racer. I mean, he's done that at the Gate River Run with the 15K championships. Mm-hmm. He is not, you know, this is his debut uh, at the marathon, but he's not afraid to get in there and mix it up and actually race and, and compete. So the a time like that, I, I'm excited to see what he's able to do the next couple of years. In his hometown, yes. too. 
Congrats to Frank. Uh, oh. Super excited. Got his him. wisdom teeth pulled today. Too, so <laughs> yes. I hope he's recovering well. I saw yeah. that on Instagram. Uh, did, did he post that? He did. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good for Frank. Great friend of the show, and we look forward to seeing him continue to grow in in that event. He's made for it. Before we get into the main topic on monitoring training load, we want to give you a glimpse into our training. So, new segment we're putting in for 2022. Hopefully, as we bring in guests, our rotation of co-hosts will all join me in sharing our previous training week. Uh, So you get a little more idea of what we're doing with our running, what our friends who we interview are doing with their running. And also, we're going to set this up since our episode today is about monitoring your training load for the most effective ways to train, to not overtrain. And also, I don't think a lot of people who listen to us are under-training, right. but, you know, there's a balance. So we will lay out with a lot of the variables we're going to talk about for training loads, what that looks like within our training week. So we're going to give you our last seven days. We're recording on Tuesday, so we're going to go last Tuesday okay. through Monday. Sound okay. good, Phil? Sounds good. I would love to give you the floor because you had a much bigger week than I. I did. It was I, exciting. It was successful. It was. Yes. So let's take it back, Phil. Start with uh, last Tuesday and tell me a little bit about yeah. your week. Well, let's let's lead in to kind of set up Tuesday. So Saturday, this past Saturday, I raced the uh, Sally Frosty Foot 30K. Mm-hmm. So 18 miles there outside of Bryson City on some of the rolling trails uh, there. So this was... Uh, Kind of a, a down week or recovery week to, to lead into that. So Monday, I did an easy four, took the dog out and ran with some friends just as a, a shakeout. Mm-hmm. Um, Tuesday was a lighter workout day. I did seven miles, about 10 minutes of warm up, and then three by eight minutes at about half marathon pace yep. um, with two minutes recovery uh, between those intervals. So trying to hit a little bit of threshold work. Keep the turnover sharp, but and normally that workout would be four to five repeats, so I just cut it to three. Yep. I would have liked to either Wednesday or Thursday do another five miles easy, but work and life got in the way, so both those days ended up being zero days, which okay. was not ideal. And then Friday before the race was just another easy four. Um, I took the day off, so I took the dog for a run and just got in a few, few strides and some easy miles to keep things sharp, and then uh, Saturday was the race. How'd that thing go up there, oh, we champ? Came, we came home with the win. So. That's right. Oh, it, was, it was a perfect day, though. It was mid-30s, so not too, too cold. Overcast. The trails were dry. So it was it was good conditions up there. There are pictures of Phil biting into a gold medal all over the <laughs> internet right now. Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. I, oh, I love that race. So. I know you do, and I know you've been there many times. Yes. And we talked... Uh, two days beforehand, I, I believe, so. yeah. and you said that being in the top 10 and maybe a little bit higher was the biggest goal, depending on maybe who else would be there and how you felt. That's always a factor of who shows up and what yeah. kind of competition's there, but it was uh, really took it out from the start and just held on and tried not to blow up. Where was second place? How big was the win? Uh, two minutes behind. Okay. So Were you... Solo a lot of the way? Most of the way. So the first mile, maybe first, so the course is set up where the first half mile is kind of a, a road climb to the trail. So everything kind of shakes out. Yeah. Um, and then with how the course sets up, it follows along the, the lake, which has a lot of coves. And so you can kind of see like back on the other side of the cove where the trail was. So you can, you can see people pretty far behind you. So at about 
one mile, I had maybe 30 yards on him. And it was pretty clear that he wasn't really going to try to bridge up and, you know, work together. Uh, so it was more just try to let's get out of sight so he can't see me. And yeah, uh, I'm not going to pull him along with me and just try to get out of the way. You're breaking guys early. That's your game. <laughs> <laughs> just, no, I'm hiding. You are I'm abs- trying not to give them motivation to, <laughs> to hunt me down. Uh, and then it was running scared the whole rest of the way. I read Cove looking back to see if he had, he'd shown up. And thankfully, the golden rule that I tell athletes to, to never look back. Oh, at I the was looking back the whole way. You were constantly yes. doing it. Maybe even in a taunting way, knowing <laughs> you. Trail was in good shape. Oh, it was perfect conditions. Yeah. It was dry. It was quick. Uh, it was a good day. New race management was good? It was. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Saft with the, and the guys up at FitRx used to run that race. I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's Life Wide Open uh, is the race group that took it over. Yeah. Um, and really, same feel, same vibe as it always has been. So you recommend it, but not to anyone who's listening who might put That's pressure on right. you next yes. year in your title defense. <laughs> and then the two days after the race, what have you done since? Oh, not much. Yeah. So Sunday, was it snowed here. So I hopped on the bike on the trainer for about 45 minutes to just shake things out. Yeah. Um, and then yesterday, snow's still on the ground, so I hopped on the treadmill for a couple miles to, to get moving. Okay. So and we'll here take, we are. We'll take this week as kind of a down week and yeah. then jump back into it. Congrats. What's, thank you. Great well, week. What, what's your training? Yeah, sure. So I'll take it back. I'll just start with Tuesday since it was not a race week for me. Nothing exciting was happening. We will just go with the last seven days. Okay. Actually, that falls then on a workout session to start that seven days. That was my first uh, Monteghetti fartlek of nice. this training cycle and of 2022. You like that workout. Love it. I uh, botched it just a touch. We've talked about it here before, but it is a 2 by 90 90 4 by 60 60 4 by 30 30 4 by 15 15 Gives you 20 minutes. I like to, and this can change depending on the time of year and what you're training for, but I like to keep those as floats in between, yep. more steady so rather than... not a full eat. recovery, but yeah, just kind of not easy jogging. If you are working more on a speed segment, though, you could dial those back and dial up the harder sections. I added an extra 15 at the end. I just got lost in the sheer joy (laughs) of punishing my body. It was a good session though. 3.6, 3.6 ish miles in 20 minutes and 15 seconds. So I was, I was pleased. The ons were really nice. The floats I want to be a little quicker on. Okay. So that's my goal. I'd like to see those probably 10, 15 seconds faster, uh, average pace. And uh, went out and swam that evening after work at the YMCA in the bubble. Nice. Yeah, got uh, got some laps in. Did You've been putting in some miles in the pool. 25 minutes of laps that night at the pool. Yeah, it's just it, it was late after work. I think it was probably 7.30 when I got there, but just enough to wear me out. Wednesday was an easy double. Ran uh, around Cleveland Park and did some of the just the nice little dirt trails around yeah, yeah. the park a little bit. In the morning, really cold that morning, I noted here. 7.6 miles in an hour, and then I came back out and did 43 minutes in the afternoon. Thursday, I ran with some of our friends here in town and put a little over 10 miles in total with some strides at the end. So that was a, a originally going to lead into a Friday session, a workout that has been bumped and now bumped again because of the weather. Yep. I decided to get my long in on Friday 
knowing that the weekend looked uh, really dicey yeah, on yeah. the weather. So that was originally supposed to be Monday. I'm glad I moved it up. <laughs> it worked out a whole lot better. And I also knew, let's get out somewhere with some dirt roads because those are going to just get mashed ah, after all nice. this snow and ice. So I was so out, you go? outside of Tryon, okay. North Carolina. River Road. River Road, uh, two hours long run, which is, that's the longest I've gone since restarting here in the past couple months. And uh, about as long as I'll go in this cycle leading up to a half marathon Started it off really easy for 10 minutes, then just 100 minutes steady, slightly progressive, and 10 minutes dialing down, turning the lights off at the end. Ended up with a little over 18 and a quarter miles in two hours, 6.30-ish pace, I think, on that. So so I'm going to highlight something here because you've talked about easy runs. Yep. And if you... you it was your workout Wednesday that was easy, that Mm -hmm. you did seven and a half in about an hour. Mm -hmm. So that's eight-minute pace. That's right. Where you're rolling your your long runs at 6.30. Yeah. So something that we'll probably get into later on, but is effort and pacing. But just to highlight the nice balance you put in there with – that's truly an easy run for you that you're putting in on Wednesday. Yeah, there's some big time modulation going on there. And I'll use it again on on Saturday as a follow-up because Saturday morning there was a group going long in town. So I tucked in with them, and it was a little quicker than I wanted. Uh, I did a little over nine miles in about 70 minutes. But I went back out that afternoon and did 4.1 miles in 32.30. So I was back again around eight. Yeah, eight-minute pace. Eight-minute pace, really recovering. Uh, Sunday, whole bunch of snow. So I took a day off from running the first one in over a month. Nice. And did yoga at home via YouTube on the Lululemon YouTube channel. Yes. (laughs) 45 minute yoga for runners. Thank you, Lululemon. Yesterday, still super icy, especially in the morning. I somehow managed to get over 17 miles of work in yesterday. Did you really? I went out. Where did you go? The roads were on I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> but to give you an idea, again, on pacing, I did uh, seven miles in the morning. I tried to go out on the trail. The trail was non-existent. Yeah. It was just snow. It was hidden. Yeah. Uh, I was in trail shoes, and I was running over eight-minute pace for yeah, that ride. I hope so. By the afternoon... So originally Monday was supposed to be a long run day. Okay. That got bumped up. So now it's going to be a workout session day. I took the workout that was supposed to happen. I'm moving that back to Thursday. I'm on a nine day calendar here. So you can see what's happening kind of every three days. And I moved up a hill workout that was going to be later in the week. I thought Ah, effort based. Main Street, River Street, some of those downtown Uh were clear yesterday afternoon. So I went back out after seven in the morning shakeout. I can't, can't really call an icy trail run a shakeout, but whatever. <laughs> and I got in over 10 with five by 400 meter hill, uh, a short jog break, then 10 by 200 meter hill. Those were into the wind and relatively challenging. Uh, essentially ran the 400 meter hills probably between five and 8K pace, and the 200s ended up. The pacing would be between mile and five. Okay, so the efforts are much yeah, harder yeah. than that since you're going uphill. Yeah. That's a, that's a good week. So, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a strong week for uh, having a day off. It, I feel good. Yeah. So let's then unpack some of the data we just went through and how it applies to everyone listening and what we can all learn to best monitor all the training load that we are putting our body through. All these impacts. That is the 
endless question that we have been dealing with with run training since the start. Yeah, it, that is exactly right. Before we do that, we'd like to thank our friends over at Do South Coffee Roasters. That is at Do South Coffee on the Instagram, DoSouthCoffee.com. Phil, you a coffee drinker? Absolutely. Yeah, buddy. I had two pots this morning. Did you really? I did. It was a late start to work, so nothing well, better than reading a book and having a warm cup of coffee. I, you know what? You know where you could do that is over at Due South's Hampton Station location. Oh, they got a great spot. That's a great spot. You're right. You can check out our friends, again, online, DueSouthCoffee.com. Feel free to use the coupon code, the promo here from Seconds Flat, SFPOD. That's S-F-P-O-D at checkout. That promo code will get you 15% off. Our good friends over there, my man Ryan, getting tuned up now for the half marathon. Benjamin, the head roaster, we told you last time. New baby girl, new addition to the family. Lucy. Oh, I got to meet... I didn't get to meet her. That's a lie. I got to see Benjamin and he told me about it. <laughs> Probably showed you some pictures. So let's pivot then to the topic du jour monitoring our training loads, what inputs we're looking at to try to have success in 2022, make this the best year of running that you ever have. I want to couch it in these terms. Okay. And that is a a polarity between two of the best runners in the world right now. When we look from the mile to 5k distance, in the top five at everything there from mile, 3k, 5k, you would find two men, both of these at all three distances, Jakob Ingebrigtsen of Norway and Stewie McSwain of Australia, who would both be in the top five at yes. all three distances. And they do this so dramatically different in how they monitor inputs. The Ingebrigtsen method is about heart rate monitors, a lot of treadmill work so we can constantly oversee Very what's specific, happening. Yeah. Blood lactate measurements. So Pain we samples during workouts. During workouts, where are the millimoles of uh, blood lactate versus the McSwain method, which is a Timex watch and no specific recorded mileage. Yeah. Uh, it is a very general look in his training log. He says, uh, I did, uh, you know, uh, maybe about 16K yeah. in whatever time it was. Yeah. He's also very loose with what paces he ran. I was generally in this range. He trains with an incredibly talented group that has been successful for decades at the Melbourne Track Club. His coach, Nick Badeau, is certainly on top of the splits and paces of his workout sessions and other runs when he is actively involved, say they're at the track, they're monitoring during the season. But like right now during a base phase, it's Stewie out with a Timex, whereas right now in a base phase, it's Gert Ingebrigtsen. Right, with a blood lactate meter. (laughs) Monitoring what his kids are doing with a blood lactate meter. So we can go to extremes here. We're still getting good results. And still be top five in the world. Yeah. We're going to come back to the commonalities those two have after we work through these. Let's address the various ways we can monitor our training load. Many of these, most of us are familiar with. We'll break them down and assess the value and then how you can use them appropriately for your individual case. So can I back you up for one Please second? Please do. 
and because I think we have a nice dichotomy of coach and clinician here, but but let's ask why we want to monitor training load. Yeah. So I'll turn that question to you first. Why do you monitor training load? One is to make sure we're not overtraining. Mm-hmm. That that's the central theme uh, that I'm looking for. I say that because we're working with motivated athletes, right? Successful athletes. I think most of the people who listen are going to fall into that category of they're they're serious about the sport. Right. And then the other thing is I want to see trends within okay. training that appear that we can look back to when we get a result and maybe we can point to. And so that's why I like a lot of, in my own training log, I, I put a lot of subjective stuff in uh-huh. about how I felt or how I slept. Yep. And, and I like to know that data as well. Mm-hmm. There's other more tangible external load measurements that can reflect that as well. The real numbers-driven person, uh-huh. the more science-based brain, might enjoy seeing those as well. And sure. so the person that I work with who looks from that angle through that lens, now we can marry all this information and get a distillation that I find useful and the athlete finds useful. Excellent. So overtraining is number one. Yeah. Number two then is what occurred thematically during your training that may explain why things happened the way they did. Excellent. What about from your perspective? No, I, I, I think I have the same perspective. One is to, for performance, to have an idea of what we are doing that may have led to success or not success. That, you know, are we not doing enough of something or do we need to do more of something or have we done too much of something? Mm-hmm. And then second is, Again, kind of going into overtraining, but looking at it from a injury perspective. Yeah. You know, have we overcooked something? Have we pushed too far that your body isn't ready for? And if we have data on what you have done in the past you know, six days, six weeks, six months, you know, six years, then that helps us to guide you know, where we might have gone wrong or what we need to, to correct going forward. Yeah, we're, we're spot on then. Yeah. Uh, the same things we're looking for. And as you spoke, I thought of an athlete that I just began working with at the beginning of the year. He has joined a group of post-collegiate guys that I work with. And I had his entire training log from 2020 that I went through before we started. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what? It's really similar to the past few years. This is going to look a lot like what I did before this as well. It's just finding those one or two things, like you said, that create themes of, in his case, we did a lot of, he did, excuse me, a lot of long tempo runs, threshold, not marathon pace, but more like half marathon. And really they got faster than that. They were ending around 10K and he's putting a lot of mileage in. And that just became something that popped out at me as I looked through this over. It's every single week he's doing it. Six, eight mile tempo. Okay. And what we were seeing is not much improvement over the course of the year. Busting out in indoor, having some races, but not getting better in the spring and outdoor track, you start to wonder, do we need to differ the stimulus? Right. What do we need to change? Or is it overcooked because of this heavy load? Right. And then you're adding to that, like, workouts backed up against long runs. Mm -hmm. 
Can we space things out differently? So yeah, those are the themes that I'm looking for when we see someone new that that person or maybe a previous coach, and it would happen the same with me after you left working with me, Phil, if you went yeah. and worked with someone else, we all just have blind spots. Yeah, It's about having another set of eyes to find those blind spots. And the training log and all these metrics become a way to find those right. and help you sort quant- through it. Try to quantify that. Try to quantify. That's right. And so we will divide this into internal and external measurements. We also want to make sure we toe a line of where is the point of information overload, the paralysis by analysis, and what is actually valuable. We're going to touch on that within each of these because it's about metrics versus outcomes. I've said here before in paraphrasing Michael Joyner, Mm -hmm. as you've said, polymath of exercise science and every other field – When a metric becomes the outcome, it ceases to serve as a valuable metric. Yes. Well, and I think that's the trap that we get into as distance runners is that, well, something we'll probably talk about from mileage is that that becomes almost the holy grail. Yeah. So let's start with volume then. Okay. Okay. Let's just go right into volume. And to use my statement I just had about when a metric is no longer valuable If 100 miles per week is some tool you're using in marathon training as a general sign of consistency, that's one thing. Right. But when the entire goal of the week becomes getting to triple digits. Getting to that 100 miles. That's that's not actually serving you to get better. Right. Uh, Well, and I think as well, a lot of runners get caught up into this idea that to break 20 minutes for the 5K, I have to be doing, you know, 30 miles a week. Yeah. Like three hours for the marathon, I have to do 50 miles a week. And there is, is... No science to that. That's right. There is no A to B direct point-to-point correlation. Volume, we can measure in either mileage or minutes. Mm -hmm. What's your preference? In my log, I do mileage. Um, But again, this is very much a do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) And that really from a physiological perspective, the body doesn't know mileage. It knows how long you've been out there and it knows how long you've been going. Or how hard you've been going, excuse me. Yes. So... I like the way you said that. (laughs) (laughs) So five miles may take 40 minutes one day. It may take 45 another. It may take 37 another. That 37-minute stimulus is very different from that 45-minute stimulus. If I'm being honest, I think minutes is a much better way to do it. Yeah, so for the reasons that you explained, that's why I always enter minutes in my log and why it's generally my target when I go out to run. Yeah. Especially on long run days, it it generally turns to minutes. Uh, But you'll see a lot as we discuss my training logs in like normal weather. On a double day, it's often 60 minutes and 30 minutes. Um, On a little longer single day, it might be 75 or medium long, it's 90. Yes. We do see physiological breaking points at some of those too, which obviously they're not precise, but it gets you in that range. There's no question volume matters. Yes. Volume is significant in in becoming a a better runner, and it's something we want to monitor. But I told you that we're bringing provocative questions tonight. (laughs) I already apparently called out Sarah Hall, who I think is fantastic. (laughs) I didn't mean it in that way at all. But does weekly mileage even matter? Does that variable, does a weekly mileage count matter? No. uh, No. And you know what? Well, at the end of the day, what matters is how fast we're running. And how fast we're running in our goal race. Yes. Okay. 
I got to put the brakes on you there because there, there is a part of that discussion then that will go to pace, which yes. we'll do next. But the second half of what you said, what we do in our race is really what right. matters, right? And how do we get there? Weekly mileage is the single most common thing an athlete will ask me about for a target. Right. And the one that I just don't care about. I want you to be consistent and I want it to fit our goal. Right. But I don't write you a plan, Phil, for your next marathon and say you're going to be a 50 mile a week guy. Right. Are we getting the quality of work we need in? Mario Fraioli has put this well, host of Morning Shakeout. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm not a high mileage guy or a low mileage guy. He likes mileage, but he doesn't call himself a high mileage guy. Right. He says, I'm a right mileage guy. Well, it's about what works for you. And I think it's using mileage as a surrogate for overall training load. Yes. In that your, your chronic training load, so the average load that you see week after week after week matters. Your acute training load matters in terms of what you do this week relative to what you've done the past four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. Good point. But when we just talk mileage or just talk minutes, that's too simple to really get a good read of what that training load is. Yeah, monthly mileage might mean something to me, or full training cycle right. mileage might mean something to me, or annual mileage. Well, let's keep going with this. I'm going to push you to the edge even more tonight, Phil. Okay. Back you into a corner. <laughs> Do our bodies operate on a weekly schedule to begin with? No. Isn't that a creation of our work week? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. See Mile 98 yeah. uh, episode here if you want to get more into what might work for you other than a seven-day cycle because there's plenty of other options yeah. that are great. I am in possession of a nearly mint condition Almost brand new, 40-plus-year-old, hardback, first edition, Bill Dellinger winning running oh, that uh, I got over jump. the holidays. And as I go back through it, most of the competitive cycles are like on 10-day blocks. Yeah. And the general training, as we've mentioned here before, was often a 21-day block. It, yeah. it, so it, it's totally different. Well, uh, and to give you a perspective on my training, I mean, I, I go off of a seven-day cycle simply because... That's what works for a long run to do it on the weekend. But it, because of that, typically I'm only doing one workout a week, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday. But with that rotation, that's not enough for me to recover to do that second actual yeah. workout that I probably should be doing because I'm going on that seven-day cycle and don't have the time to recover. You know, whereas if it were a 10-day cycle or maybe even a 14-day cycle, then there'd be a little more room for that. That's why I've gone to nine, and so it, it turns out to be like two workouts in a long run typically. Uh, sometimes if I go to ten, two, that yeah. allows an extra day of wiggle room. The seven can work nicely for especially a younger runner because they bounce back quicker than right. you or I do, and they might be able to pop a Tuesday, Friday, Sunday kind of right. thing. I, I can't do much of that, or it starts to add up. Another point here with volume and what matters is the surface and the terrain matters. Yeah. Because not all miles count equally, even within just a volume discussion. Right. Because on varying terrains, you're working all kinds of different muscles. On, different surfaces. On different surfaces. It, I, I think about how I felt leaving that two-hour steady run last week, which was the first of a cycle, and I felt really good. I'll admit that I was a slight bit sore that night, like when I went to bed, just because I hadn't been to that place yeah. in a while. 
but there is something freeing about the terrain that I did it on, the space, the nature that I was yeah. in, the, the 28 wild turkeys, the rafter <laughs> of wild turkeys in a field at mile 16. That matters. That changes perspective compared to if I'm doing that on city streets. Right. Now, next big question, Phil. Are certain inputs within volume actually restorative and in turn load reducing? Can you increase volume and simultaneously reduce load? Ooh. And so my examples would be okay. walks. Yeah. Very easy runs. Very, very easy runs. Yeah. Uh, like the Kenyan poly poly type run. A really slow double in the afternoon after a workout session in the morning. Maybe some cross-training modalities yeah. like swimming that I'll do or yoga or on the bike. These are adding to volume. Yeah. But are they actually reducing load by being restorative? I would say probably depends on your training age okay. and kind of your, your, your experience. Point. So I hate to use myself as an example but again. But do it. But you know, Listen, you're the, you're the champion. The 30K <laughs> champion of America. So you know, typically Monday and Thursday in my week will be just an easy four-mile run after a hard workout day the day before. I feel much better coming back around that next Tuesday or that, that next Friday having done that 30 minutes yep. than I would having a total rest day. Yes. But if you're somebody that's on a you know three or four day uh, training week cycle, adding four miles or five miles or whatever probably is going to take some getting used to and adaptation. So in one case, it's probably restorative for some people. In another, it's probably beats them down a little bit and takes a little more recovery. Whereas they may be better served to get on the bike or get in the pool or do do something else beyond the repetitive nature of running. Agreed. Two examples. One, for that person who you were just discussing, a walk may serve the same purpose sure. and it is still adding volume yeah. and time on your feet. Two, I take myself, uh, we went through my week, that was very typical for me. I tend to do a decent amount of volume. But as you saw, I run slower than most of the people that I run with. Right. That's done intentionally so that I can get the most out of those quality days. Right. To go back to our original Ingebrigtsen-McSwain discussion, the Ingebrigtsen approach to training, especially in the base phase, would be it's all about Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday when they get their quality work, often double quality yes. sessions. And all the other days exist solely to fill in the calendar, build the yeah. volume, and prep them for the next well, one of those days. Well, and they're also taking those readings to make sure on those easy days that they aren't getting their levels too high. I don't spike it too high. Right. That's right. And I don't do it too hard because then I'm going to a place that I'm not trying to train. They will go really hard on their hill work, but that serves them as the, well, if I did this on a flat, like often it's 200 meters for them. If I did this on the flat, the risk of injury the mechanical load, as we're right. talking about, increases dramatically. Right. All right. Let's then let's pivot a little bit once okay. again and go to pace, since I think volume and pace are the two most commonly sure. measured variables here of external training loads. I, I'm putting you on the hot seat. Today, <laughs> I'm ready. Is pace potentially for a single run, for one single run, Okay. is it potentially the least valuable tool we can measure. 
the least valuable tool. Because I can make it an argument. I don't know the I'm least con- valuable I'm a contrary. <laughs> I think it could be. I think because- it's overrated. Okay. And I, I think I'm, I'm where... going to win you over, Phil. <laughs> is, is... You're going to wear my letter jacket by the end of the night. <laughs> I can't respond to that. That's okay. <laughs> I think there are much better metrics than pace, whether that is perceived effort or okay. heart rate or a uh, more nuanced measure such as power. We'll get into all three of those. But I, so I think it, in and of itself, pace doesn't make too much of a difference because going back to what you were talking about with the surfaces, it makes a difference if you're if you're flat, if you're going uphill, downhill, asphalt, trail, all that plays into it where you still may be getting the same physiologic response. So the reason I asked that question, and it is so much more than that, I'm simplifying here, but any one run, the pace that you ran is almost meaningless yes. because it has to be in the context of everything else you're doing. Pace is valuable to me when evaluated over time right. where we can see trends in a couple big things. Modulation versus regression to the mean. Right. Running medium paces in and of itself is fine. Running medium paces every day in between your hard workouts now can become problematic. Yes. If you tell me I went out and ran 10 miles at 7 minutes per mile, 70 minutes total, great. You tell me I went out and ran 10 miles in 90 minutes, great. But they mean something totally different when put in the context of all this stuff. And so here's why pace is valuable to me. Okay. I use it more as a speed limit rather than a baseline. When we know I have a workout session that I ran yesterday or one coming tomorrow Mm -hmm. that we're trying to get quality hard work out of, putting a speed limit on the days that surround that keep you from compromising the value of that harder work. Absolutely. It's a great governor. Yes. Well, and I think pace gets too much play because as our technology has gotten fancier, we're able to measure it supposedly more correctly, but there's still a huge margin of error. Mm -hmm. Um, And as well, in the age of social media and with Strava, it looks much nicer to have a run where you average, you know, 7.15 pace than you average 7.55 pace. Yeah. As you said that, my GPS watch clicked and told me to move. (laughs) That's it right there. I don't even know how to turn that alert off. But I'll tell you what I do know. I turn off the auto lap. I don't care. I don't need to see it unless I'm using a, a workout session that actually has a set right. the time or distance that I want to split. Well, I'll do you one better. Yesterday, I'm, I'm doing a lifting workout. And as I'm sitting there exercising, my watch tells me my recovery is going well, that I'm well rested. <laughs> and I'm looking at this thing as I'm in the middle of a workout. It's like, thank you for that information. Yeah, you were really... I was working hard. You were putting in a pretty good pump, weren't you? <laughs> Yeah, this one, it's so easy then, as we've talked about before, Phil, off air, to fall into your default pace. Yes. And that might not be the right pace for that day. For that day, or even for you in general, period. (laughs) Um, So just be cautious here. That's why I like it as a speed limit more than a baseline. This thought that, oh, I got to go out and run eight minute pace every day. Well, maybe, maybe not. That happens to be like, my default pace is, I'll take this training block that's now like two months old. 
my default is to get out really, really slow for the first yeah. couple of miles and gently progress on almost every run. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. I think that's a safe place to be. But it starts off often very slow. You know, I might have a, a run that averages seven minutes and 30 seconds a mile, but the first mile was 830. Yeah. So just be aware of your default pace and aware of, is that appropriate for the day? Right. That's why I just think pace on any single day is really overrated. I, I don't think it's the least valuable. I'm, I'm actually going to argue it then that the next one is the least valuable. Well, uh, you want to no, keep talking I, I about gotta, pace. I got to put you on the hot seat with pace, though. Do it. So do it, Phil. I 100% agree. That... I ask the questions around here. <laughs> the... This is my podcast. <laughs> Bring Cosmo back. He never asks me hard questions. No, he gave me a promotion. So... Guys, gives me a softball. All right, go ahead. No, so I, I agree that pace is a, a great governor to slow you down on days where you need to take it easy. Do you think pace is important when you're trying to hit workouts? You know, say you're say you're trying to do repeats of it doesn't matter. Say eight minute repeats. Yep, this is great because you know, are you trying to target a specific pace, or where do, where does pace fit in that picture? Yes, I was actually going to come to this point at the very end, but I'll bring it right now. The external measurements of training load, an external measurement like pace, matters to me more as I get closer to a race. Okay, when I might be working on specific economy at race pace. And what I'm doing right now in my training block and, and how I feel for most of the training block people I work with, I want to think about an effort yep. for those 100%. segments. So that's where pace fits in my own training in workout sessions. I do note it, but I want to also note how that felt. Right. So yes, it's, it, it is a measure that I put down, but again, it's not the outcome. Well, and I, it's I think a metric. we'll get to this at the end, but the, the big conclusion needs to be all these are just tools to teach us to learn how to listen to our body. That's right. Yeah, think about, you know what? There were people who ran without GPS watches. That's right. And I've heard a few of them were pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Stewie McSwain's still doing it right yeah. now. And I'll tell you what, if you're listening to this show, he's better than you. <laughs> because there's only a couple people in the world who right. aren't. And I don't think they listen to us. No. If you are shouldn't. listening and you're better, email me, secondsflippodcast at gmail.com. I'll send you a singlet. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it's honest, right? That yeah. Really, really good runners have done it for years. And in races, I'll often just turn the GPS function completely yeah. off. Uh, I would imagine in your world championship that you won this past weekend, <laughs> given the setting, GPS is probably useless no, there. I, so. I had time and I had distance to have an idea of when I needed to take fuel and how much further I had to go. But GPS was useless because you're turning every yeah. you know 10 yards. Um, I have a couple other measures that I use, but heart rate was somewhat useless because it's rolling hills. Yeah. So you know, by the time you're at the top of a hill then your heart rate's starting to adjust. It's not when you're in the middle of it, yeah. you know, struggling up. So, no, it was all based on running away from the guy that I was hiding from. So, my positive spin on pace is it's really good as a, kind of a speed limit to keep you in check so that you don't overdo it, especially on those very easy days, and that it becomes more valuable as you near a target race, when you're headed for a command performance. Learning that feel. Learning that connection yep. between pace and feel. You opened the door for the thing I like even less than pace. I'm so negative tonight. <laughs> a little surly. Well, it's that internal training load that we need to, well, to adjust. We'll get there. We will. It's heart rate, Phil. Yes. Okay. 
I'll tell you why I like it. Okay. First, the value of your resting heart rate, that measurement to me, especially when taken first thing in the morning, is very valuable as an indicator of sickness, imminent yes. sickness, or overtraining slash lack of recovery. Right. That's why I like heart rate. It means nothing to me during that was a a bold statement that i just made <laughs> during during sessions it means nothing but let me say that more gently i have never in my life monitored my heart rate during a workout session or a race interesting and i have never asked an athlete to provide me with that data okay now i don't think it's meaningless there are ways you can use it but i think there are too many variables Absolutely. confounding that process and that's why i dislike it so before i let you go on that okay. phil let me just talk about the resting heart rate quickly yep. this is one function i actually like on my gps watch i just hit the down button and it kind of shows heart rate when i have this on it's i probably spiked because you're well you're hot right now i'll tell you what my high in the last four hours it says is 141 that oh, was probably man. when i was screaming out the college football playoff <laughs> no it's it's very controlled right now it's it's at 56 oh so not bad nice. but what i do like here and i don't normally sleep with the watch on mm -hmm. but i did it this week knowing that this was coming yeah and i then go over scroll over one screen and it gives me my last seven days average resting heart rate and each day is monitored, and it's great because what you see is Wednesday, the day after a workout, oh. Saturday, the day after a long run, today, the day after a workout, that average resting heart rate is slightly higher, yeah. which makes sense because yep. you're recovering. On those days, I'm somewhere in like the mid to upper 40s. The lowest I go is 38. My average, according to this on the last seven days, is 42. Okay. When I actually take a manual count on my yeah. pulse first thing in the morning, this is probably about right because I'm normally getting around 40. Yeah. Yeah. So that that has some value because I can see the recovery. If that's staying high, it's a suggestion to me that I'm not recovered. Yep. I, maybe I'm getting sick. You might feel those things anyway, but it can be good to have the data to back it up. Now the floor is yours, sir. So here, I think in heart rate has a role in two places. One, what you just said, having an idea of your recovery, taking your resting heart rate in the morning to get an idea of what your average is and make sure that you're not overreaching. I think it is useful to have an idea of your maximum heart rate to allow you to set a governor on your easy run to that. In that a lot of folks throw out the formula of 220 minus your age to give you a, a, an estimate of your max heart rate. That formula is could not be more useless. Thank you, Phil. I just wanted to throw that out there. It's garbage. Yes. Don't use it. So having an idea of what your actual maximum heart rate is, and we can talk about a couple ways to test that in a minute if you want to, but basing your easy runs off of a percentage of that maximum Am I interviewing rate. Phil Maffetone right now? <laughs> no, not, please don't correlate with me with him. Uh, but just like Pace, we're using as a governor for not making those easy days too quick. We can use heart rate as a surrogate measure for that as well. Okay, that's a fair point. It is a bit of a six in one, half dozen in the other, right? right? It's overkill to just layer all these on top of like all these checks on your easy right. days. Let's dive into two things you just brought up. I'll go to the, the, the last one first, actually. Okay. Uh, what number do you use as the governor 
on heart rate to make sure that you're in check with easy efforts? I would say below 75%. Okay. So that opens the door to how are you measuring heart rate on those runs? That's another good question. All right. See, that's why it's problematic to me because... Well, and and again, I think it goes to teaching you to learn feel and that if we look at these tools we have to measure, it's with our GPS watches, it has an optical sensor on there, which some of them are quite accurate. Some of them are quite inaccurate. And even between watch brands or watch Mm -hmm. uh, styles, that's a question. So Um, the watches are increasingly accurate. Right. They've gotten better and better in recent years. If you're using a watch, though, where do you place it? Right. It's important to understand that. You got a little bone here at your (laughs) wrist. You need to move that thing back down the arm an inch to an inch and a half from that, which is a little lower than where some people wear their watch to get the most accurate reading that your watch can give you. But it's still your watch. It's not great. Maybe you go to a chest strap. And at higher intensities, that becomes even Uh, less accurate. Uh, Chest straps are more accurate. But again, this is just another measure. Yeah. So your 75% number to me is interesting because I would actually want to go lower yeah. on a truly easy day. I think it's lower than that. I want to see numbers if we're going to use these numbers. Now, well, for example, Phil, what do you know your maximum heart rate? Yes. Okay. One, how did you determine that number? It was the end of a 20-minute tempo effort. Yeah. Max effort. So the average of the last four minutes... Of that 20 minutes. Great. So that's a traditional lab protocol yep. to figure this out. All right. What number did you come up with? 194. Okay. That sounds good to me. That yeah. seems realistic for you. I think mine's a little higher, but it would be in the same range, yeah. right? Again, another reason why 220 minus your age is no good because right. we are not 20 years old. <laughs> I may look 20. But... Well, don't even get me started on how good you look today. <laughs> 194. 75% of that is going to be just under 150. Right. And I actually think the number for you at 194 should look more like 130, maybe even 120 for a truly, truly really easy run. Easy yeah. run. Yeah. Um, I heard an anecdote from a, a coach, a well-respected triathlon coach, and I can't remember the exact context or the quote now, but I recently heard this. Training at 120 beats per minute has no value for our performance, but I still assign it (laughs) because I know that it's where we want to be in restoration for all the other stuff that's coming that actually is valuable. Yeah. So, you know, I will go like, I'll check this sometimes afterward and see what the heart rate is. Yeah. 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 If it's right and if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I don't want to see 150 on an easy day. For me, I don't even see one – like 150 is probably about what I averaged. I could look it up. I don't know. But it's probably about an average heart rate that it registered on that day I did the steady long run. Yeah. That's more in that range, I think. But here I'm arguing over a variable that I don't even like. So what does it matter? Neither one of us really use. Yeah. And this is why. There are myriad factors influencing heart rate on any given day and at any given moment. And that's why this metric is the one I am least likely to use. And I know some people are super into it, especially when you move into the tri world. But I think it's just the hardest to pin down and find value from. Well, not only that, but it is the slowest to respond to changes in effort. That's a good addition. If we're doing... You know, 90 second intervals or two minute intervals, our heart rate's not even responding by the end of 
that two minute interval. It takes, you know, three, four, five plus minutes That's for right. that heart rate to get up to the level of intensity where you're at. Yeah. Some coaches will refer to this as the free fitness that occurs in like the 10 seconds after any hard interval yeah, because yep. you're still working at that effort. Right. Yeah. Let's move on to another one that is also, at least for runners, can be a challenge to measure. But if we could measure it well, maybe is more valuable. Sure. That's power. Yes. So the question with power is when and how can we, one, measure it and two, improve it. Right. Because it's a challenge for runners. It's a lot easier for cyclists. Yes. This is an, a measure that is like a it's gold standard for, for that. 20, 25 years. Yes. It's not longer. And so critical power then translated to what we'll call critical speed yep. for running purposes also is incredibly valuable. Yes. It's just a little harder to accurately measure. I know there's like the stride power meters out there. I think those are good tools. Yep. But I think more than being a slave to an actual watt number of powers of power, working in the range that we are seeing both in laboratory work and with elite athletes that improves critical speed, working in those pace right. ranges when we talk about actual targeting paces as we get closer to race day, right. that may be where the real value is in power. Sure. And, and so I'll present it this way. The studies show after somewhere around 90 to 100 minutes, we get a significant decline in power output with the fatigue that yes. happens beyond that point in training. So then the question is, what value do we get in working on it beyond that point in training? Is there any? My argument would be we actually can work on extending it and resisting mm -hmm. fatigue and improving power by working on it more when we're fresh improving the ceiling. It's raising the ceiling. It's yeah. raising the ceiling of power. Because I think there is some overlap here. The most valuable metric that I can think of is running economy. All right. That would be my ah, number one metric. Okay. I don't know how to measure that yeah. on an everyday basis yeah. efficiently, right? But we can find overlap with running economy uh -huh. and, and critical power and fatigue resistance. In that when we are focused on being consistent, we know that improves running economy when we consistently run. Mm -hmm. And that's a tool to improve running economy. Well, so, so let's go ahead. Go I ahead. know where you're going with this, but for, for the listeners, define what you mean by running economy. Yes. So it is the oxygen cost of exercise at any sub-maximal value. Yes. Okay. And so how much energy am I spending to run at marathon pace, at half marathon pace, at 10K yep. pace? If I can raise the ceiling of both how powerful I am, mm -hmm. which then fractionally each of those paces is a little easier, easier. Yeah. and I can become simultaneously more economical at those paces, yep. right? Because I'm using less energy to do them. Now we've created some metric that I don't exactly know how to measure, but I know makes me faster right. and I know gets me better. Right. And I know in turn helps me resist fatigue. So if you're into marathon training, that's why this matters mm -hmm. because you're going beyond the 90 minutes, beyond the 100 minutes. So that's why my argument is work on these things up front, especially early in your training. I made a statement in one of the recent episodes we did develop a skill when you're fresh, then you start to learn how to sharpen it yep. when you're fatigued. Right? Absolutely. I can't develop high-end speed for the first time two hours in to a run. Right. Well, and I think we've talked before about 
other tools to improve running economy through whether that's strength training yep. or plyometrics yep. or strides. Yep. You know, that that is raising our top end speed. That's raising our ability to put force into the ground. That's raising our ability to lengthen our stride, mm-hmm. all of which will make it easier for us to express speed. And within that conversation, Phil, another layer to the onion is that as you talk about strength work, if you do the body weight strength work and the mobility type strength work, the hip and core stuff, not the heavy stuff, after your sessions, now we could possibly have a running economy impact and And a fatigue resistance impact and a recovery mechanism happening. All three of those things could be happening at once. We're straying a little bit from power, <laughs> right? but there's real overlaps here in why power may actually be valuable. And there's a big connection here as well with staying creative in our workout constructions. Sure. Because everything is so lab-driven that we've strayed from when I read Bill Dellinger and we did work at the beginning and then we went out and ran a steady run and then we came back and did hills or we right. came back the and did something fast. strides or hills yeah, or something and, like and that. And so there was a creativity, there was a variation within the session. Yep. Those combined sessions can be really valuable. Just understand what they are. If you want to go out and do VO2 max work or lactate threshold work, that's great. Do your 20-minute threshold run. We yep. know what you're measuring. Understand if you do it in chunks and add hills at the end, you're getting something different, but that's not inherently good or bad. Right. It allows for a creativity in some joy, some mental freshness, some variety. Yeah. the variety, and it allows us to touch these different skills like economy and power simultaneously. Anything else you'd like to add on power? I kind of got off excited there. Yeah. So I think getting back to the, let's say, simplicity of using power. Yeah. You know, we have these tools, and not that this is a simple tool, because it's more of an algorithm to figure out how much force you're putting into the ground. And it's just a sensor that some companies have chest straps or little foot pods or whatever. But it's a metric that we can measure, much like heart rate, power, mm-hmm. pace, mileage, that is a little bit more nuanced and specific to incline, to time yeah and is a little more instantaneous to respond than heart rate yeah and i'll add you could also to translate power to speed critical power to critical speed you could do a classic critical speed test Mm -hmm. i don't have any desire to ever do one of these but it's the classic example we've mentioned before is running something like three minutes as hard as you can that actually means as hard as you can yes that doesn't mean three minutes hard it means from the gun run as hard as you can, and then take the average pace over the last chunk of that three minutes. Yep. Like, it could be the last 30 seconds. It could be the last minute, depending so on who... If you look at the data, I think it's the last 45 seconds. Yeah. Because I've had this question with, with some researchers that do this type of stuff, and the reason it's three minutes is that those first two minutes and 15 seconds basically burn off all our energy reserves That's right. that are used to go, you know... That distance. So then when we take that last 45 seconds, we get a true average of that last energy source, if yeah. you will. I'm grossly oversimplifying. Sure, but, but we get the point. This yeah. test has to be done at absolute full speed from the gun. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you what that last 45 seconds feels like. Oh. Absolute <laughs> misery. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that it's... 
the closest example we could probably get is the feeling of tying up late in an 800 or a mile. But even there, you've paced yourself. You paced it, it's yeah. the closest, maybe somewhere from 400 to mile, something in there, those feelings at the end, those, those are miserable feelings. Yes. We don't have any time for that. But if Let's you want to go out, I'm tired of it, yes, <laughs> I, I hurt just <laughs> thinking about painful. it. I do want to add a couple external factors that need to be considered with any of these other measurements you're using. One is your fueling. Absolutely. This plays a huge role here. Overwhelmingly, the body of research data shows improved performance as well as improved body composition when we fuel during our longest runs and we eat before our longest and toughest runs. There is little evidence for value in fasted, intense training. Now, I do my daily runs, my easy stuff, without having eaten before. I do the same. First thing in the morning. If I were a woman, I don't know that I would do that, though. I think there's real significant genetic differences in how that food is processed, what our muscles are doing for women. And I won't go too deep here, but there's plenty of good articles and evidence out there you can get into on the difference between male and female bodies here. So as a man, maybe I do this on the easy stuff. But just because you can run two and two and a half hours doesn't mean you should. Right. Well, and it adds significantly to the recovery cost. And that's the thing. Can I get, can I bounce back and be ready for the next time? And if you are into running because you care about your health and also the way you look, it may run counter what you think, but yeah. getting all these carbs in and this high sugar stuff during the runs, that actually is going to be more helpful. Yeah. And it changes how you eat the rest of that day too. But there's no question it affects the way you feel, the way you perform, and it all those metrics we've gone through are impacted by this. Yep. The next would be the weather. Adapting with conditions and focusing here, I'll say it, on effort over pacing in the hottest and coldest temperatures. Right now in the winter, and then as we transition from the spring to the summer, mm-hmm. this is something to monitor. Our coldest day of the year... And our iciest day of the year so far here, both turned into hill sessions for me. Yeah. One was a longer hill. It was just really cold. It was a workout day. And I just flipped stuff and and put it into something that was more effort-based. But I would do the same. And I'll say this, even if nearing a race, this is my exception to the idea of external outputs becoming more significant as we near a target race. When I go to grandma's marathon in June that we talked about earlier, and my plan is to run the half marathon there. June in Minnesota is different than June in the rest of the country. And training in May and June that you and I feel with the weather that we live in, it might not be worth putting a target number on every workout for paces, even when I'm like four weeks out from the race and getting close. Effort may be more significant because I might dig myself into a hole that I can't get out of in time for the race if I press too hard. Yeah. 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 Let's go to wrap it up then with... The internal factor. We've hit on this a lot already, but perceived effort is to me the most significant measure. And it doesn't have to be on what like Borg scale and and all the RPE scales are out there. How do you measure it? You don't have to always put a number on it. It can be subjective and that's okay. So here's... I'll disagree a little bit. Probably, Please do. We probably won't disagree, but I, I think... want to disagree. <laughs> I haven't liked a few of your answers. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of actually like creating a quantitative measure, which is hopefully what we're going to 
gradually work our way around to by the end of this, that putting a number on perceived effort, number one, teaches you what your body feels, but allows you to create a quantitative number to track what you've done that day, that week, or for that training cycle. Yeah. So I I, I agree where you're saying that we don't necessarily have to quantify it, but I think there is absolutely some use of saying, you know, this effort was a seven out of 10. This effort was a two out of 10. Yep. And I assign stuff like that. Uh, I will prescribe that. And I, I do agree with you, especially on, yeah, well, you're (laughs) generally right. And I'm generally wrong, especially in uh, workout sessions. Yeah. That that's a tool that I like to use to say like, oh, this is a seven out of 10 effort. This is an eight out of 10 effort. And so that, you know, you're not going all the way there. Right. Yes. So I use it there probably more than I do on easy days because on easy days, it comes back to me. It's like, just run easier. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I don't want to simplify too much, but it's like, I, I've heard the phrase used of glacially slow on a recovery <laughs> day. And yeah, it. Just if you're not sure, run slower yeah. on an easy day is my point. Or on a recovery day. Right. I, I should – I mean, we have a whole episode <laughs> defining those two, so I should be more nuanced. And my position there on not always putting a number on it comes with experience. Yeah. There's a point, and this is where we want all of you listening to get to, when it's not just about the number – it's about knowing what things feel like and being able to say, I can back up. Phil, I could tell you right now, we could put all these measures up and I can probably tell you exact paces yeah. when I'm running without ever looking at yeah. my GPS because it's a measure of experience. I know if I'm in shape, what six minute pace feels yeah. like, what five minute pace feels like. When you're fit, you know what those things feel like, but it comes with well, consistency Because you've time. been paying attention to that through all of your workouts for the past however many years. That's right. You know, I'll use the, the cross-country runners at Furman, for example. You yeah. ask them to go run a 60-second quarter, they'll be there within a second. Yeah. You ask them to run a 75-second quarter, they'll be there within a second because they are so in tune to what those efforts feel like Yeah. that it's just automatic. Where you ask somebody that you know just has started running to run a two-minute quarter, there's going to be a variation of 15 to 20 seconds. Yeah. And it's not just running the number. As you said, it's actually internalizing what it feels like. Yeah. And that's the step you have to take in learning this is recognizing what that felt like when you finished. And so in this way, this is how you can connect the external measures and make them potentially more valuable because you know what those feel like right. across the board. Also, that modulation of effort may be more significant than modulation of pace due to the differences in how we feel on any given day. You gave an example earlier of the five-mile run. Mm -hmm. 45 minutes may be necessary one day, depending on how you feel, but 37 minutes, as you said, might be okay on another. And so it's knowing how taxed your body is. Well, and I think I had one more point. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think your point about the easy effort and having the governor, whether that's pace or heart rate or whatever, is dead on because if we get – into too nuanced of effort, you can't totally trust it. And that, yeah, you know, you going out with your friends on Saturday for a quote easy run, you're going to get dragged into 7:30 pace, and it's still going to feel easy because you're having fun and chatting and paying attention to other stuff. Yeah. Whereas if you're solo on a treadmill because there's snow on the ground and it's wet and cold, yeah. you know, 8:30 pace might feel taxing. So we can't totally trust uh, our perception of effort. But I think that's a good place to start. And what we can trust is when our body tells us 
how we feel, not just during an effort, but before or after it. Right. Your body is telling you. It, it's got a lot of answers for you. <laughs> it's telling you, you listen. I, I'm tired. Maybe I need a day off. It's telling you we need to recover today, push the workout session back a day. And that leads me to what I think is maybe the most important input to monitor. And that's our own ego. <laughs> we have to check the ego. Absolutely. It's both the bravado of pressing all the time because you think you can and the insecurity at the other end of having to prove yourself in workout sessions. Right. When does it actually matter? Being able to appropriately and confidently check your ego and remove it as a variable and saying, I have to go out and press because he's pressing or I'm on an easy day and I want to drop some guy who ran by me. Right. When you can do that well, especially the men, <laughs> we can get rid of the ego. You're going to be more successful using any of these tools. I will give a brief reading recommendation since you and I ah, did yes. a reading episode and got all cut out on us. Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. His whole series of books are really good, but there's plenty of great examples here of mistakes made by leaders who are swept up by their own egos, and then the great decisions that were made by those who are willing to subjugate the ego. Running is competitive, yes, especially racing. But to separate confidence from ego, wisdom from ego, I don't exactly know how we measure that, <laughs> but it's the thing that I'm working on every day to do better. That's yeah. the one thing I want to make the decision that's best for today. What do I need to do today? Within the context yep. of everything I want to do that's bigger and better and bolder. And then you'll get to the spot where you're successful. Yeah. One other thing to point out here, passion and joy. Because I do believe you can't always get measurements that reflect those things. Right. And you can make decisions that may otherwise seem good or bad, but in the context of what you enjoy, what gets you out the door, why you love why it. Why you still do this. Yeah. yeah that, that could change a decision. I love the process. I love being disciplined. I love seeing how much I can improve. I get joy out of doing the right thing on the right day within my running. Right. You love running up Paris Mountain, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. You are training it, one of the things you're training for. You're not going to rest your laurels on a 30K intercontinental championship <laughs> belt. There's more to come. There's more to come. You're targeting the Myrtle Beach Marathon. Yeah. It's a pancake. Strength work is good for marathons, but I would not be prescribing to you in the weeks right leading up to the marathon to be running up Paris Mountain. Well, I'll still be but you're going to be doing yeah. it, right? Yeah. Because that is one of the things you love. Yep. And as long as you can keep that in proper balance and recognize... Well, I think that's the key is, is seeing where you're making those sacrifices in your training for other more nebulous goals. Yeah. That, that's critical. If you love to get out with friends, get out with friends. It's okay if the pace is 10, 15 seconds or four or five heartbeats per minute off of what you think is best for that day. You don't want to do that every day, right. but you want to spend time with your friends because your attitude and approach to running will be better because you shared it with them. Right. But don't go out like some people that we may or may not know and turn <laughs> we won't name names. Every, probably listening. <laughs> every certain morning of the week. Into a race around town with no purpose. You have to find a balance yes. there. And understanding these 
inputs like effort and pace is a little more valuable because I still love just running. Yeah. I love running. I, I can put those other things in the moment when I need them and know that I, there's certain guys I can't run with at certain times. It's not best unless they change their mind and decide they want to slow down right. on my easy day. <laughs> they learn but, how to run easy. But they, they, they don't seem to be interested in that. <laughs> so I'll do what's right for me and then I'll run with them when the time is right that we can both benefit from it. Let's finish here, Phil. If you could create kind of an ideal structure. Yeah. We've touched upon these, yep. but last so, thought then is is what might your ideal structure of like? using yeah. these inputs, what might it look so, like? Yeah. What's, what's in your training log with the information, the data yeah. from this stuff? So I think it's helpful to quantify this, you know, whether that's through a specific number or what have you. But number one is what's my motivation to train? Like how excited am I to get up at five o'clock tomorrow morning and get out there? Or how excited am I to get out and do 10 repeats around the track? That gives me a good measure of, and we can quantify this on a zero to 10 scale if you want to, but having an idea of day to day of, am I doing things that are rejuvenating or am I gradually draining that battery where four weeks from now, when I really need to be doing the main work, I've burned through that because I'm doing stuff that I really don't want to be doing. Secondly is what's the actual work that I've done? Again, if we're going to put a number on it, let's go with number of minutes and then let's go with a session RPE where let's say I've done an hour at, you know, an effort level of seven, you know, that's 420. Because we're going to quantify this and kind of track a load through a week and through a cycle and what have you. And that 420 may be 60 minutes steady. It may be, you know, 10 minute warm up, five by eight minutes and 10 minute cool down. Um, But it kind of gets us in the ballpark there. And what you did there was you took 60 minutes times Times seven. seven. Yep. And then how I felt after, you know, was I cooked? Was I comfortably tired? Was I fresh? To give me an idea of what do I really need to focus on tomorrow. And then additionally is having an idea of life life stress. You know, how well did I sleep the night before? How well did I sleep, you know, that night? You know, how hectic was work? Was this a, a workout that I had to force in over a lunch hour or was this a workout that I was able to sleep in for and take a leisurely morning before I went and and did it Uh, and then to a degree and having an idea of nutrition as well Um, you know was I did I eat something before did I eat anything during having a loose a loose idea there did I have two or three beers the night before and some ice cream or did I you know have spaghetti and uh, some vegetables so I think that that to me is Ideal. My framework is going to be very similar to yours. To go back to our discussion on effort, perhaps the reason that you and I get to the same end, but do it a little differently, Mm -hmm. is your background is one of science. While I spend a lot of time reading the science, talking to folks like you about it, and digging into it, that is not my background my, my background is one that looks more like a person who is a writer. Right? <laughs> it, it's someone sure. who, who is like we often see ourselves when we're in school as someone who's like a math science suited uh-huh. person and someone who is a humanities and history suited person. And I definitely enjoy those things sure. more. And so that's why my writing is – I use the word earlier subjective in my training logs, I think a better term is descriptive rather than quantitative. I use numbers. 
like you, I want to keep a, a total of like how many minutes I had. I do note paces for everything because it's easy enough to figure out right. when I did eight miles in an hour, it's seven and a half right. minute mile. But again, those are more valuable for me to look back on. They're not something that I worry about during right. particular on a recovery day. Uh, so it's descriptive. And then, as you said, describing how I feel. And often those words probably would very easily translate to your number sure. scale. Sure. I do make notes about nutrition. I do also, which you didn't mention, but we've talked about here a little bit, make notes about weather. Mm -hmm. I think that is significant. Um, I would also encourage you to look at the logs of all of our great runners in the 70s and 80s before the advanced metrics were available, because these are the kind of things they always noted. Yep. Uh, they, they keep track of these factors like effort, like weather, like I felt sick, I didn't sleep well, mm -hmm. that's one I note, or I slept really well. I, I do like to have that. You brought up the idea about noting the enthusiasm for the training. I will use that as well as a way to adjust training sure. and move some stuff around. If someone says to me, I'm super excited about working on this skill that we had planned for a week from now, if it makes sense, let's just bring it up yeah. and move the other one back. And if that gets you more excited to go out and do it, I'll tell you this, I wouldn't have been excited to try to go out and do something timed yesterday in the snow. It would have been no use. And I started thinking, well, can I push it back a day? And I thought, eh, it might still be messy out there. You know what? It yeah. probably would have been. It wouldn't have been worth doing it today. I just moved up an effort-based one that kind of got me excited and then just moved something else in. I don't have a race coming in two weeks. I can move some yeah stimulus around so so those are the key factors that i'm playing in when i think at the end of the day all of this is targeted to teach us how to listen better to our bodies that's right that is what that's what i was just <laughs> gonna say phil that you you filled the and you you're exactly right yeah understanding what all of these things actually mean to you is what's valuable right and as we would with the advice on any skill you're working on, don't go out and try now to measure everything that we laid out and analyze each one. Unless that's something you're excited about. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, I guess. But I feel like it might overdo it a little yeah. bit. But find the one that we've discussed that seems to fit your personality and your enthusiasms the best. And then start to use it as your measure, your external measure that can go with your internal measure. That's great advice. I'll bring it back full circle to finish. We started with the juxtaposition of Jakob Ingebrigtsen and Stewie McSwain. We talked about the ways they go about this differently. McSwain looks at it probably a little more like I do, very much on these internal measures where the Ingebrigtsens are so scientific in looking at the external load. But the key then is to think about what they both actually do. What are the commonalities? Because they're the best in the world. And there's clear paths in different directions mm -hmm. here. But what do both do? They train hard, but they don't overtrain. Yeah. Don't think for one second these guys just do a bunch of easy work. That's not how you get to the top. No. Especially in the competitive phase. They're doing hard work. But... It's done in quantities that are palatable. It's followed by easier stuff. It it's varied. It builds. It's sequenced. 
And it's multiple years of growth put together. It's not just me saying, well, now I can just start doing all the workouts that Stewie McSwain does because he's good and I know what he does. Well, yeah, I could probably take some of the stuff. And here's the other thing. Don't take their stuff and do the rep distances if you want to do their stuff. It's do it for time. Work for the amount of time. If they're doing Ks in three minutes, that might not be at all appropriate for most of us. Right. But you could do three-minute reps at the same comparable intensity. Same yeah, yeah. Right? And use the effort. And so that's the takeaway with all these you see from these guys is they use these variables, whatever they are, to train hard, but to make sure that they don't overtrain, to pull themselves back when they need to. And to get to a place where they can consistently build to not risk injury, because that's the thing we want to keep you away from. And then you have a better target for your race down the road. I would say we have sufficiently... We've covered load. Covered (laughs) load. And I feel like I asked the provocative questions that the people are asking for. I think so. All right. Thanks so much for listening. It is great to have you in. We will see you next time. On mile 105 of Seconds Flat, please email if you have any questions or show topic ideas, seconds, or if you are faster <laughs> than, we'll send you a than Stewie McSwain. Secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. It's cold. Go get a hot cup of coffee at Due South. They're I good will. people over there. Yeah, you actually will. I might, yeah. You, you can <laughs> uh, because you're here, but people out there, if you're local, Go see them at Hampton Station. If you're not, check them out at Do South Coffee. We love those guys, so go support them. We'll see you next time on Seconds Flat. Have a good week.